Hi, I'm Carson. And I'm Alex. And you're listening to Old Bright. Old Bright is a podcast made by Carson Ellis and Alex Joe Ryan. It is an ongoing collection of conversations that document musings, speculation, and light research on and around an Oregon pioneer farmstead. Our theme music is The Willamette Shore by Chad Crouch. The Robbins Melcher Schatz Farm is located on Otfaliti, Kalapuya, and Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde land. The U.S. government gifted this land to European-American settlers in the form of land claims during the mid-19th century, inherently and violently displacing its original stewards. You say something, Carson. Hi. 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 How's it going? Good. Oh, we're starting. I guess so. Hi. Hi. Hi, Alex. It's so good to see you. It's so good to see you. It's been a really long time. I know. You know what I was just thinking about? What? Well, remember the very, very first episode of Albright where Uh we were like, um, hey, this is Alex and Carson. (laughs) Welcome to Albright. Just to prepare you for what's going to happen on Albright, we have Mm -hmm. these segments Mm -hmm. every week. We're going to have a main segment where we talk to you about something, but there's also going to be a segment called From Our Listeners. Yeah. And we're also going to have a segment called The Woodlot, where we introduce you to some new thing we've learned. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to have a segment called What Is This? We sounded really organized. <laughs> we sounded so organized. We sounded so pro, where we were like, we're going to ask you about something. We're, sh- we're going to put something on our blog that's going to be like a picture of something we found on the farm. You're going to look at it yeah. and tell us what it is. So like we had this whole plan. And, and, we were and like, then don't worry about us. This isn't like that much work. We're just like chilling. We're just chilling and, you know, yeah. kind of rolling through all this. Um, and we're going to, and you can expect a, a new episode every week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It's hard for me to even like talk about that without a profanity, but... F that. Yeah, F that. That was so much work. What were we even thinking? I don't even know. We had no plans, really. We were just like, we both know we're abstract thinkers and we need structure. Yeah. But you know what? To all the abstract thinkers out there, you don't need structure. (laughs) (laughs) Or how about this? It's okay to break the rules you make for yourself. Okay, okay. That's better. Yeah. Yeah. So welcome to Old Bright. Welcome to Old Bright. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think... We, we love this podcast so much, and I and now I think we're sort of in a completely different place with it. It has morphed and evolved along with us. I mean, I guess it's kind of about what everything is about this year. I mean, I, we already did this in a couple episodes ago where we were like, this year is about non-timelines. Yeah. But I actually do think that like any project you make in 2021 is about change. <laughs> yeah. It's about like evolution and letting go of expectations and adaption adaption and so welcome to old bright where we sometimes talk about history and we talk a lot about change and sometimes we talk about art and we enjoy each other's presence Mm -hmm. and your presence dearest listener i just noticed something alex i know that you're going to read some stuff off your phone and i Mm. see that it has a low battery warning oh my god i'm just gonna quiet it until we need it okay Great. That might get edited out, but maybe not. We just don't. Uh, you know, know what? No. No. Everyone yeah, needs to know that we're real people with real phones. That's right. That aren't always charged. No. Because who's got time for that? Honestly, I never charge my phone. 
Unless I'm in the car. I charge it overnight. Do you charge it next to your bed? Yes. Are you worried about getting weird, like, rays in your head? No. Okay. But I am worried that <clears throat> it is disruptive to my sleep architecture to look at my phone in bed. Mm. Yet I do it. Mm, me too. My main, uh, like, go-to-sleep practice, like, my my most surefire helping myself fall asleep thing is doing the crossword on my phone. You know, that's okay. I like that for you. Thanks. Yeah. I like it too. It works. It's not like you're on Instagram, like feeling like you should be someone that you're not or something, you know? Well, I mean that too sometimes, <laughs> but mostly just the crossword. Just the crossword. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, you know, this morning I was thinking, I've been thinking this recently. So my routine in the morning, I wake up, my partner makes me coffee. I know I'm really spoiled. And then we sit on the couch and we listen to Up First, which is like the NPR most important three stories in a podcast. And it mm. usually takes like 12 minutes. I didn't know that. And it's great, and, like, I've done it for years, like, every morning. Hmm. But I feel that I, I am seeking a change. I'm seeking to be more intentional about my news consumption because it's been such a news-heavy year, and I feel like I don't even think about it anymore, that, like, I just pour all of this complicated rhetoric into my head mm-hmm. and act like it doesn't affect me, but it does. And... If anyone out there knows about like a 12 minute inspiring or meditative or like sort of positive, positive, but in like an interesting way, Mm -hmm. like I don't want any glossy, cute 12 minutes of morning. Yeah. I want like... Or like, here's your daily mantra. No, no. Nobody's perfect. No, no. I don't want that. You do you. (laughs) No, I don't want that either. I want someone just like exploring something interesting for 12 minutes that I can and it's different every time and that's how I start my day is by tuning in and out of that Hmm. while I'm on the couch drinking coffee I bet someone out there has a good suggestion yeah um I do think that for a lot of people the past couple years has been a process of like I previously I I felt bad about not being attuned enough to news Mm -hmm. and to current events and now I'm no more attuned or no less attuned than I was before, but I'd like to be less attuned to it because um, while I don't want to be living in a cave, I also feel like there's so much bad stuff. Like you, I maybe don't need as much of it swimming around in my brain. Yeah. And the doom scroll is real. Oh, man. It's like I'll go to NPR when I'm bored just because I want to know what happened next. That's beeped up. It's beeped up. So, so <laughs> on, that note. <laughs> on that note, we are bringing back one of our old segments. Yeah, from our listeners. From our listeners. Um, yeah, so we're going to read some of the emails that we've received over the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Everybody wait while Alex powers back up her phone. <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, so we got this email from Matthew Peacock. Matthew, can I just tell you that I love your last name and... In another life, I'd like to be named Alex Peacock. Thank Some people you. are so lucky. Yeah. Their names. Their subject was Staddlestones, and the message said, Thanks for bringing this kind of history to our ears. I much prefer learning about how normal, everyday folk live in their time period, rather than specific dates and events. Your discussion of Staddlestones reminded me of a wonderful BBC series called Edwardian Farm. A group of archaeologists attempt to live on a rural Edwardian farm, as the Edwardians would have done. 
If you forward to 25 minutes into the attached episode, they discuss the use of their farm's staddle stones. Thanks again, one happy history geek here in Cambridgeshire. Rad. So sweet. Okay, well, first of all, mm-hmm. um, I that is the best show in the whole world. <laughs> People have been telling us to watch it for forever, and you finally did. I d- nobody. I don't remember where I I heard about it. I I just sort of came across it, but I watched Victorian Farm. Okay. And then I watched um, Tudor Monastery Farm, which is my favorite because I'm like a medieval nerd. And then I I was recently watching Edwardian Farm, and when the Staddlestone scene came on, I gasped and I said your name out loud. Wow. Alex. Oh my God. Alex. Because I knew about Staddlestones from Alex. These shows are so good for history nerds, but I feel like for anybody, like I was watching them with my eight-year-old and my husband, and we're all kind of equally enthralled. Mm-hmm. Ruth Goodman, not all archaeologists. Technically, she's a historian. And the other two, Alex and Peter, are from um, our archaeologists. They're all in England. Peter Ginn is my celebrity crush. Oh. It's okay. My husband knows. I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. Peter, you're cute. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe Uh, he listens. Maybe he does. Hey, if you're in England and you know these people, just, you know, maybe they want to be on Old Bright. Yeah. Please tell them that they're really, they're (laughs) super welcome. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So totally shout out to Edwardian Farm and Tudor Monastery Farm and Victorian Farm. They're basically reality TV shows where these people, these contemporary people, live on farms in these time periods using the technology that people used back then. But maybe my favorite part of the show is that they bring in all these experts and they make them dress in period clothes and oh. everybody's so jazzed. So That's like in amazing. Victorian farm, they're like, okay, well, we've got our, you know, we've got our harvest. We have to go load it onto a, a barge. Let's go down to the canal and find the barge master. And then this dude shows up and he's all dressed adorably in Victorian clothes, and he's super excited, and he's like the the premier barge expert of England, you know? Wow. And he shows up, and he's like, let me tell you about barges. Wow. It is my favorite thing to do. And then they talk about barges, and you learn about barges. That's next level. I'm going to go watch it. It's so good. I, I know that um, this doesn't sound like fun to a lot of people, but I feel like it will sound like fun to a lot of old bright listeners. Yeah, I was going to say, if you're listening, it probably sounds like fun to It's you. probably your jam. Okay. okay, should we move on to the next one? Yeah. Okay, this one's kind of exciting because I actually have the act- like a paper. We got a, from our listeners' response that is an actual letter. You wow. can hear it. So old school. Actual paper. <clears throat> Long ago, we did an episode called Hexafoil, which was about this witch marking carved in the door of our barn. Mm-hmm. A marking that someone carved into a door in order to ward off sorcery and like evil demons and witchcraft basically so we did some research into that we did an episode about it and then it sort of devolved as it does into a conversation about witches and witchcraft and what that means in contemporary times a conversation for which i had consulted my friend mo who is a witch and um and she actually wrote she listened to the episode and she wrote a response on paper with a pen which was really nice She's a good correspondent. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I am going to read a a section of it that I think um, people might find interesting. So she says, it occurs to me 
that it might be useful to identify witchy practices as opposed to naming a vocation. So instead of same, I think saying like witchcraft, witchy practices. Uh, and that's perhaps more accessible to listeners slash people. Like an artist receiving information is priestessing it in that moment. The way we might shush someone who is um, talking because we're sensing an important download coming through. Or you could do a little witching in the garden. I like to tell people I got my witch's eye on it if they want me to pay attention to something. Maybe easier for people to access than a declarative statement. You could say of a painting or a song, that's a nice piece of priestess work. Or when you resolve a sibling argument, that it's a piece of effective witching. You know how if you want a kid to feel safe, you just kind of unfurl and wrap your loving branches around the kid and non-verbally help them calm down? Or when you feel someone erect an energetic wall and non-verbally rebuff you? That's what witching can look like to me. We all do it all the time. Some people have more of a tendency proclivity, which is why I believe it's important to get training. When we work with the invisible realms, but have to live in a visible, tangible, shared reality, a person can easily get lost. Training, grounding protection, building relationships with plant, animal, and spirit allies helps us to be in balance with the work and stay anchored in our humanity. Hmm. So I thought that was helpful, mm -hmm. just some, some context from um, an actual witch instead of just us... Uh, gabbing gabbing and making the best sense of it we can I really relate to the download part like when you're in a thought I mean it feels so special I, that's not the right word but like when you're when you're like on a mental wave mm -hmm. and someone's interrupting you for whatever reason and you're like it's so valuable to be on this mental wave I just need you to wait <laughs> do you yeah. know what I mean <laughs> um, I do know what you mean I think that's what moment too yeah also, talking about, like, relationships, I mean, I don't know that I'm not trained in any way, but I love rose hips in the winter. Do you? Yeah, I just mm -hmm. feel like they're so uh, charged. They're like these, like, last push of energy from the prickly bush, you know? Hey, years and years ago, when Milo was super, super little, mm -hmm. you worked for us, mm -hmm. and you helped take care of Milo, and you picked some rose hips and you hung them on a nail on one of the posts in the barn. And they're mm -hmm. still there. Yeah, Did you know that? No. They've probably been there for five years. Wow. I'll show you That's after we're done. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh. There's also a very witchy little bouquet that you also made for Milo years and years <laughs> ago. And it's all like cobwebby, but it hangs over his bed and it's very old and kind of very cherished. Well, thank you. So maybe you did a little bit of affecting... Effective witching. Maybe I those, just with those established a, an apartment for a new young person. I put it up together for him and put rose hips all over. What do they represent to you? And do they represent anything traditionally, or is it mostly uh, a significance you've assigned them? Well, I don't know very much about what they represent traditionally. I mean, I haven't like. Yeah, I guess I. You mean 
roses are red kind of traditional or no like do they have a kind of like is there a tradition of i know people drink rose hip tea mm-hmm. oh just to back up rose hips are those little red balls that grow where the bud of a rose had been yes so you see them in the winter and sometimes in the fall um but i know people drink rose hip tea but i don't know what sort of like spiritual or medicinal qualities it has mm-hmm. i mean i don't I, everything is completely self-assigned. Mm-hmm. When I was young, my grandparents had a farm, a small acreage, and it had many different lives of what it was while they owned it. And one of the iterations was it was a, an organic rose farm. Mm-hmm. And my favorite roses were these like brambly, really wild bushes mm-hmm. that were huge. They were like 10 feet tall or something. And I remember when we would go visit at Christmas, the bushes would be covered in snow and there would be all the rose hips on them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the first time I remember noticing them, but living in Portland, the city of roses. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of roses planted just in the street, um, like the sidewalk lot. And I don't know, they just really stand out to me as like, um, roses are beautiful, but they're so overrepresented in culture that there's something uh, spiritually vapid about them yeah but the rose hip is the color is like incredible it's like this deep red the surface of them are like kind of waxy and they just feel like this last push of energy before something goes dormant I think I like that I like that too yeah it's true and interestingly roses come in so many shapes and forms you know those big bushy kind of wild rose roses Mm -hmm. don't resemble very much that single stemmed rose with big thorns that you would put in a vase Mm -hmm. but that's sort of the one we fixate on and that's my least favorite I like the wild roses yeah me too Hmm. well okay okay on to the next on to the next letter let's see Rachel Rittman wrote us subject hashtag team Jenny (laughs) (laughs) message I fully succumbed to to the desire to decide whether Jenny was a good or bad nugget. And I will tell you that I will romanticize her forever. What a survivor. I think perhaps the Melcher husband and the ex-husband were in a relationship with each other, and Jenny was the somewhat unwilling front for that. I base this conclusion on exactly nothing. (laughs) This is like when people want to do their own research regarding the COVID vaccine. Um, Rachel, I loved your message. Thank you. And just to recap, she's referring to Jenny Melcher Mm -hmm. uh, and the somewhat sensational story of a woman who once lived here on my farm and the person who does seem to be at the root of the rumor, which I guess was true, that a barn was burned down for arson money here. I'm sorry, for insurance money here. Arson was committed for insurance money. Um, And she, her story was very complicated and as we were telling it, we were sort of torn by this impulse to decide whether she was good or bad, whether she had done good things or bad things. And I ultimately decided that I didn't want to decide and that I didn't have enough information. But this listener has decided she is Team Jenny. Mm-hmm. And I totally respect that. Yeah. She's definitely a survivor. She was definitely a survivor. Yeah. Um, I love the romance that you have envisioned. I love it too. And you know, it's fun to imagine, but also maybe it would answer some questions. We cannot figure out why Jenny's 
like secret ex-husband. Mm-hmm. I'm going to very briefly recap. But she yeah. came to live here and married the son of uh, the matriarch and patriarch that were sort of running this farm at the time. And she came here as a widow and said she was a widow and she married the son. But then it turned out she wasn't a widow and she actually had an ex-husband. And then at a certain point, we discovered through our research that her ex-husband lived at the farm too. Yeah. So it is mysterious. That's so weird. Ugh. Yeah. Like, it's hard for me to even just dabble in that story because I get all um, overcome by it again. I do too. It's such an all-consuming kind of tale. But yeah, maybe maybe, um, maybe they were sweethearts. Mm-hmm. Maybe Jenny's, Jenny's sweethearts were sweethearts with each other. Yeah. And yes, agreed. She was a survivor. Love that. Our last... From our listener for today is from someone named Alila Diane, um, who's actually a friend of Carson's. Mm-hmm. And the message subject is Prince Albert. Hello, gals. Very much enjoyed the first episode and will be listening till I catch up. My first house in Portland was an 1890 farmhouse. And when I moved in, the prior owners left me several relics, which had been found in the walls. Amongst them were several cans of Prince Albert, And so it was great to hear about this history and era of that tobacco. We just moved and I left the cans behind for the new owners, as one does. We're now the stewards of another historic Portland home, a really crazy 1892 mansion that is the original house of the Woodstock neighborhood. Many relics have already been unearthed in the basement, and I'm excited to see what else we find as we dive deeper into our journey here. I also need to familiarize myself with the historical society. Anyways, love the stories of times past and mysterious discoveries. Can't wait to listen more. Thanks, Alila. Yeah. So, and that was a response to an episode we did where we went under the barn and we pulled out all this, like, just stuff that was stashed under there. It's a little area under my barn that's uh, tall enough for you to stand. And people seem to have hung out there a lot over the years. There's lots of bottles, an old boot, some cans of tobacco. Um, and we also found a can of tobacco, of Prince Albert tobacco. Mm-hmm. Um, it, 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 this message um, instigated a conversation between Carson and I, where we were like, we need to ask everyone listening what the craziest thing is that they've ever found in their house. Yeah. Like, I kind of want to know. It would be, you know what would be fun? What? If everybody sent us the craziest thing they ever found in our ha- in their house and we had a list oh my and God. we could just read it please on the next do. episode please do also like objects specifically objects mm-hmm. but also separate have you ever felt that your house was haunted do you have any good haunted house stories that are like first person accounts and can you share them with us it would be really fun to do a ghost story episode yeah we don't have any good ghost stories, but I have feelings. I have feelings. Um, a few weeks ago, someone turned on the shower in my house, and nobody knows who. No. And Are you serious? Yes. Which shower? But also the upstairs shower. I'm, and I'm kind of, um, I've been really forgetful lately. So the scarier possibility is that I did it and just completely forgot. Like I went into the house and I was on the phone to grab something out of the bathroom and the shower was on and I was like, oh, Colin's in the shower. And I, you know, like finished my conversation. I came back out to my studio and then Colin called me and he was like, who turned on the shower? And I was like, you did, you were in it. He was like, I didn't take a shower today. (gasps) 
So my first thought was like, oh my gosh, it's a ghost. Finally, this ancient house we live in, there's a ghost. But I don't know, it's not happened since. And also my memory is so bad. I'm always putting my coffee cup in the microwave and forgetting about it and forgetting appointments. And it just seems to be getting worse. So I mean, it's possible that in a, it, but it, but it would be weird to turn on the shower it wouldn't be weird to turn on the shower and forget and be like, oh God, I left the shower on, you right. know, when I saw and be like, oh my gosh, how did I do that? And then remember that you had done it. Yeah. And then be like, I can't believe I left the shower running and forgot. Yeah. The fact that I didn't even, like I saw the shower was on and I just didn't even register it and thought that Colin was in there is a little strange. I think that's strange. Like that day, did you feel like you needed to wash your hair or anything? Uh, I don't remember, but I had a pretty clear memory of what I did that morning. Like I had been answering emails in bed and then I just came straight out here to work and then I was on the phone with my agent and ran inside and the shower was on I don't think that you turned it on you don't think so no I would actually prefer it was a ghost because I don't want to have like early onset (laughs) dementia oh my god yeah um yeah so stay tuned stay tuned yeah and do do (laughs) see which way that goes what have you found in your house that's an object what have you found what's you know, what are good stories that you have from your house that are supernatural? Yeah. Or unexplained. Unexplained. That's fine. The shower mm-hmm. is unexplained. But yeah. potentially not supernatural. Um, so we did want to kind of honor this property that Carson's on through talking about some of the animals that have passed away this year here. Because mm-hmm. there have been a lot of animals that have passed away here. Yeah, this is going to be like... This is a new segment we're calling In Memoriam. (laughs) Hopefully it won't happen very much. Yeah. (laughs) But um, yeah, so when I moved here Mm -hmm. in 2013, um, there were two llamas living here already. I may have already talked about this on a previous episode, but just briefly, they belonged to the listing agent for the property. So the real estate agent who was selling the property was like, those are my llamas. You can have them if you want. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, yeah, definitely. I would love your llamas. I didn't know anything about llamas. Yeah. Seemed weird to say no to a a llama adventure being offered (laughs) to me. So we had these two llamas that were here when we moved here. They weren't young. I think they were maybe like eight to 10 years old when we we moved in. Uh, And then maybe a year later, some good friends of mine had a couple of pygmy goats that they needed a home for. The llamas were Danny and Sugar. The pygmy goats were Penny and Maria. And um, my friends lived in Portland, and they had the goats in the backyard. And I think it was fun for a while, but it was just kind of close quarters with their goats and their kids and their dogs. So Penny and Maria came to live here. And then a little while later, my old neighbor, Sarah Taylor, who is like a humanitarian midwife, so she travels to war-torn and third world countries and delivers babies, She's pretty rad, older woman, who lives kind of next to the woods in Forest Park. I feel like I have to segue to tell this story about Sarah because it's so amazing. I mean, I'm listening. Are I'm you, engaged. Are you engaged? Yeah. Okay, so Sarah was in some other country, and I think it may have been the Philippines. And she was in a village, and a really scary mosquito-borne illness tore through the village and was, like, decimating it. And people were dying, and she got really, really sick. And she thought she might die. And in her fever dream, she said, if I make it back to Portland, 
I'm going to get a lamb. Wow. Yeah. That feels so Christian. Well, she's like an old hippie, so I don't think okay. it's a Christian thing. In fact, she's got pretty specifically uh, pagan vibes. If I had to, yeah. If I had to, to, to figure it, like she's got witchy vibes. Maybe yeah. she is a Christian. I don't know, but she, um, she had grown up on a sheep farm, and she just okay. really—it was just this like moment of heartfelt, like I want a lamb. So yeah. she survived, and she came home, and she got two lambs. And uh, one of them was always kind of sickly, and she went away on another trip, and while she was gone, one of the lambs died. So she came home, and the remaining lamb was really sad, and she was getting to be more like a sheep at this point. She was pretty big. Uh, She was sad, and she was lonely, and she was very imprinted on the humans around her, but didn't have a lot of animal friends. So Sarah called me to ask if she could come live here, and I said yes. So she brought her here, and that was Birdie, the sheep, Yeah. who I loved very much. I think... I mean, I know you're not supposed to pick favorites with anything, children or animals, but I think Birdie was my favorite. Birdie was my favorite. She was actually pretty shy, but she was really gentle, and she loved to be scritched and pet, but you had to approach her just right. Like, if I went and sat in a folding chair in the pasture, she would come over and put her head on my knee, and I could scritch her head, and she loved it. Mm -hmm. But if I tried to, like, walk up to her and pet her, nothing doing. And her body, too, was, like, a really interesting shape. She was quite obese. <laughs> she was. <laughs> but it wasn't, like, you look at her and she was, like, soft looking because she was a sheep, you know? Yeah. She had, like, this fuzzy hair that wasn't really, like, fur. I don't know. It wasn't, like, usual wool. It was, like... So, interestingly, she's a haired sheep. So, okay. she doesn't get sheared in the spring. She just loses. She sheds. So, that's why, like, at a certain point in the late spring, like, half of her hair would have, half of that wool would have fallen out and the mm-hmm. other half wouldn't. And so, she always looked really bedraggled for, like, a solid month. Yeah. But she was just doing her thing. But underneath all that frizz, her body was so dense. Yeah. Like, if you touched her, it was, like, not squishy obese. It was, like, dense rock shape. Yeah. Like, she, sculpted. She weighed a ton. She was <laughs> so big. Um, so I had all those animals, and then at some point over the summer, my friend Cynthia, who lives in Portland and did a lot of goat breeding, um, though she has now retired from goat breeding, but she bred the two goats, Penny and Maria, that I got from my friends, and she was on her last remaining goat, an old goat named Becky, who was actually the mom of Penny and Maria. And again, Becky's friend Pocket, who I think Pocket was the other one, who was the other old goat had passed away. Becky was all alone. And so Cynthia was like, I think that um, Becky needs to go live with other goats. Can she come live with her daughters? And I was like, yes, she can. So she came to live with me. So these are the animals, and they are like a little sweet crew that I've had for many years. My kids have grown up with them. Uh uh, Maria and Penny and Becky, the goats, Birdie, the sheep, Sugar and Danny, the llama. And the llamas are getting kind of old. All these animals went through a pretty traumatic year because in the fall of 2020, we had really, really devastating wildfires. We were in an evacuation zone. We didn't have to leave. In fact, we took in a bunch of other goats that ha- did have to evacuate from someone else's farm. Um, But there was no place for the animals to go. They were just out in the smoke for weeks. And the AQI, the air quality index, was like in the 500s. It was absolutely unbreathable. Um, So that happened. And 
I don't know. It's just been like a rough couple of years on the farm. And so I don't know if any of this had anything to do with it, but we've suffered a lot of animal deaths this year. Mm-hmm. There was intense heat this summer. Right. That was the other thing I was thinking of. And yeah. then we had heat like I've never experienced before, like nobody in Portland, mm-hmm. Portland, the Portland area had never experienced this kind of heat it, as far as we know. Mm-hmm. So, and Alex was here with me mm-hmm. during that heat wave. Um, because we were doing that we we, <laughs> we were doing like about an, that yet. we were doing like an archaeology antiques roadshow on Zoom which we will tell you about another time yeah um but so she was here during that heat wave where we were heat, we were hosing down the llamas all the time because we were worried that they were going to overheat um and in the wake of that heat wave one of my llamas Danny kept getting this thing called choke which is like when food gets caught in your throat and it's really horrible and you have to like clear the blockage and it's super traumatic for the animals and Danny passed away um, after the second the second time he got choke which i think he got because he was dehydrated because it was just so hot it was very sad mm-hmm. and then a few months later, Birdie got really sick kind of all of a sudden. she I went away. I was gone for the weekend, and my friend was watching her, and she seemed sick before I left, but she went downhill really fast, and she died, and we don't even know why. Mm. Super devastating to lose Birdie. And then like a month after that, Sugar, the other llama, got a cancer diagnosis. She's got this giant mass in her chest, and... I think that made her a little sicker and also she's kind of moving slow because she's on all these pain meds. And I think what most people don't realize is that llamas are amazing guard animals of smaller animals. Mm. So a lot of people have them, you know, in lieu of like a guard dog, they'll guard sheep and goats. So Sugar and Danny had been guarding the goats all these years. Um, And we never locked them in at night or anything, even though there's coyotes around, we didn't have to worry about it. And I still wasn't worrying about it because Sugar was still up and around and seemed like fierce enough to ward off coyotes, but no coyotes got Maria, one Mm -hmm. of the little goats. Mm -hmm. So that was really sad. We had four beloved farm animals die in the course of, you know, like a handful of months. Mm -hmm. So this is the in memoriam remembering of Danny. Oh, I'm sorry. Three. Sugar's still around. <laughs> I know, She's still I was kicking. Like, in my head, I was like, "Oh, I didn't One, know that Sugar had died." Two, but... <laughs> That's so sad. I, I, I've not written Sugar off. She's still got a spring in her step. She's yeah. still around, but she doesn't really have a spring in her step. She's yeah. like pretty much on her last legs. She's real sick. She's on tons of medication. We lost three animals and got a terminal diagnosis of the fourth. So yeah. it's been a sad few months, and just I just want to shout out all my animal friends. Yeah. Uh, the happy news is that we got a new llama because we had to get someone to keep an eye on everyone. Her name is Wangari. She's named after, she came to us with that name and it's a really awesome and righteous name. She's named after a Kenyan activist who won a Nobel Peace Prize, I think. Um, but we call her Wanda <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Sometimes I call her Wanda, Wanda Wangari, like... That's her last name. But her name is Wangari. We call her Wanda. She's ungodly tall. She's like a full foot taller than Sugar. And she has these like really goofy kind of like Great Dane vibes. Wow. My friend described them as. Um, And she's really sweet. She's bringing us a lot of joy. So that's that's the happy part. New family member. New family member. Love that. Yeah. Mm. 
Ready. Well, that leads us to our last segment, mm-hmm. which is art talk. <laughs> Carson and I were like, what are we going to talk about today? And we had all these options, and we realized that what we really wanted to talk to each other about was what projects we've been working on. Mm-hmm. And we feel like one of the most interesting portions of our conversation in episodes past was when we did this. And so I hope you'll bear with us. While interesting we to us anyway. Yeah, enjoyable to actually talk about. Yeah. Uh, well, it's really fun to nerd out about research and history stuff. But of course, like a certain amount of effort goes into that and also a certain amount of like intellectual organization in terms of how we want to how to tell you guys about the stuff we're learning about this property that's not either just like a gushing enthusiastic like stream of consciousness ramble or just like a timeline that we're listing off to you however with acceptance of like we really have no idea what we're talking about ultimately it's all just rambling rambling. (laughs) but as a reminder we're not historians at all like not even in the tiniest bit We are both artists, and that is what we spend most of our time doing and thinking about, and also perhaps the lens that we're looking at a lot of this historical stuff through. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So we've refrained, even though we haven't seen each other for a while, from asking each other what we're working on, so we can do it now. Alex. What? What are you working on? Oh, thanks for asking. You're welcome. Um, What am I working on? Too much, also the right amount. Mm -hmm. Um... Big projects and little projects. I'm working on this film project right now um, that is about the Trojan Nuclear Center, which is a uh, old power plant in Oregon. There was a nu- it was actually the first nuclear reactor I think in the United States, and hmm. um, it was demolished in I think 2002 or 2003. Some in the early 2000s, the reactor was demolished. Um, and now there's just sort of this like scarred landscape from it and it's been turned into a public park, but half of the park has like a chain linked fence and weird old buildings that people in like police cars still work Mm -hmm. at and it houses nuclear waste. Mm -hmm. And so it's this like contradiction of like really beautiful, like effortless seeming natural space that people come to, to walk and be in. And then this like very controlled like human uh sort of like concrete scape Hmm. that has lots of power lines and a friend and i are making a short film about it Hmm. which has been such a fun and new journey for me because um we're using a bolex so it's like a factual film and we've been ordering the film from new york and then we shoot it and then we send it back to new york to get it uh, developed and digitized mm-hmm. and then we edit it on our laptops and um, and I think like for me I went to school for painting and I think I have often felt like a yearning for creative expression outside of my trained craft because there's something so beautiful and raw about like figuring out how to do something and like it feels like there's this potential to be more honest when you're doing that sometimes mm-hmm. Um, so it's been really exciting to play with this medium that feels, um, I think aesthetically like it's in line with how I like to express myself, but also, um, there's a lot of learning and play that's Mm -hmm. going into it. 
Cool. That's so exciting. Yeah. So that's like a big ongoing project that we're, I'm working on. Is what, there yeah. a, I, I'm, I have questions about it. Like, okay. Is there a thesis and do you have a feeling about nuclear power? Because I feel like that's controversial. I feel like I grew up, I don't really know or understand very much about nuclear power plants, but I grew up as the kid of hippies, like with just idea that like nuclear power and nuclear power plants were like dangerous and environmentally devastating or something. Mm -hmm. Though I actually don't know why they're more devastating than other forms of energy. Mm -hmm. But but then also I've had conversations with people where they're like, no, nuclear power is like the cleanest, most renewable, most safest. Like, are you, do you yeah. have any kind of, um, do you fall on either side of that? And is that any part of the making of the film and the premise of it or the message of it? I think when we, when we started out, um, the way that this project was started is that I was on a trip with my grandma to Astoria mm -hmm. and we drove past the old site. And when it was built, it was built in the 70s and 80s and there was this huge um, propaganda push behind it to make people in the area comfortable with it and excited about it because it cost a lot of money and mm -hmm. the tax money was funding it. <clears throat> and so um, when my grandma raised my dad here, my grandparents raised my my dad and his brother here and when they were young they would go there as kids and visit the center and there was all of this interactive display and like learning games and like a whole visitor center and it was it was designed to be a public space for people from Portland to come learn about nuclear power and and so on this trip with my grandma like almost 10 years ago now we were driving past it and she just offhandedly referenced it like oh that's where Trojan used to be and I had never really heard of Trojan before because it's long gone. Mm -hmm. And um, it sparked my interest. And I think, so to answer your question about if I have a feeling about nuclear power, um, my take is that the making of nuclear power is clean and impressive. Like you can make so much more power than with other forms of energy making. Mm -hmm. But the problem is that it creates nuclear waste and no one has an explanation of what to do with that yet mm -hmm. with the nuclear waste and it's incredibly dangerous the nuclear waste is and so um, in Oregon what happened when they stopped the nuclear power plant was they left the nuclear waste there um, so it's still there like in these holding tanks but they shipped a lot of pieces like the old nuclear reactor and like these enormous like pieces that that were probably toxic themselves um, to another nuclear site called Hanford, which mm -hmm. is in the gorge, which um, for listeners who aren't familiar with Oregon geography, there's a river, the Columbia River, that separates the state of Oregon and, and Washington. Mm -hmm. And it cuts a sort of valley between these sort of um, mountainous and hilly ranges on either side. So mm -hmm. that's why it's called the gorge. And probably it would be like a five hour drive from here um, or maybe six hours there's this other down the river so east from us there's another nuclear site called Hanford which actually made a lot of um, products for World War II like bombs and then went on to make a lot of nuclear power and itself is extremely controversial because it has poisoned a lot of the local region and there are a lot of people who link their cancer diagnoses to this um, site hmm. and so I think on a personal level I'm afraid of nuclear energy because it feels like 
um, short-sighted. Mm-hmm. It feels like we don't have enough information to do it safely yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that our thesis about the film is sort of about um, human-affected landscapes and sort of a an observation of like modern archaeology on something that's not so so long gone. Mm-hmm. Um, so much of like the American West, like in Oregon, the West Coast, or like all of these little small towns in Oregon, they feel like they can't, they like were established only a hundred years ago and they're already in ruins. Yeah. And, and Trojan feels that way. It feels like you walk around and you see all of the cement foundations for all of the buildings that they took down. And there's all of these remnants of this thing that was a propaganda push and like a very big deal in the whole world. Like, I think it's one of the only nuclear towers that's ever been demolished. Um, So it is like a really big deal. But if you're there, there's no information or signage or anything that tells you what it is. So it's this interesting con, um, like at once they want you to feel comfortable because they still maintain the park and they, they, put fish in the pond and people fish from it and you know it's incur- there's like a disc golf site and it's encouraged that people come spend time there and at the same time they work hard to like make sure that you don't know what it really is hmm. or like what it was once was hmm. so I think it's sort of the film itself is sort of like a an abstract observation on that like offering of information or not offering of information hmm. through the landscape that's all stuff I didn't really know. And it's interesting. So so the main concern with nuclear power is nuclear waste. It's mm-hmm. not like Chernobyl or like some kind of nuclear... Well, power. that's also a concern. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, when they built Trojan, um, basically they really want... We needed power in this part of the world at that time. We think we still do, but they've, they've focused on other ways of making it. But at that time, there was like this coming, this looming, we are not going to have enough power in a certain amount of years, like more people are moving here than we have power for. Mm -hmm. And so there was this um, political push to like make more power happen right now. And that sort of overrode all of the scientific studies that like um, warned of the effects of what it meant to build a nuclear reactor where they were building it. So Trojan itself or like PGE, um, Pacific, what is it? Pacific General Electric, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, they have stated many times that it was the safest place to build it and that's why they built it there. But in truth, that's completely not true. There's like a crack in the rock bed that it was built on that is linked to the big earthquake that will come someday. Oh my gosh. And so but they wouldn't were... have known that when they built it because that whole Cascade, Cascadia subduction zone fault is relatively... Yeah, I think they did know, I think that the scientists, I think there were people linked to Portland State University who were, um, what do you call it, lifting red flags. They were worried about it. Raising them. Raising them, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, I mean, an example of how serious it is, is when they built it, people said, well, what if Mount St. Helens erupts? The water that cools the nuclear reactor was pulled from the Columbia River, Mm -hmm. and that's why it was on the river and if the mountain mount st helens erupted it would clog the river with ash 
and that would clog the cycling of cooling water, which could lead to it overheating, which could lead to it like exploding and pouring all of this waste into the river, which would pollute like the whole river ecosystem. Yeah. And so there was that concern and they said, well, Mount St. Helens is never going to erupt. Well, when it did, they like immediately sent barges out to go back and forth in front of Trojan to clear it out so that it didn't get clogged, but it was like very hush-hush because huh. it was like a really big deal. Like it could have clogged and become explosive. Wow. Which is just crazy. It's like, it, it was a pretty um, tumultuous, dangerous situation that um, I think really only ended because of its proximity to a hippie liberal city and all of the people who had a close eye on it. But it's curious that all of the nuclear reactors that are still in function just happen to not be like 45 minutes outside of a liberal city. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Can I ask one more question yeah. that's funny? Of course. What does nuclear waste look like? Like, is it oh. like green slime, like on The Simpsons? <laughs> that's a good question. And I guess I have two answers. One is that I don't really know. Uh-huh. And one is that um, I think nuclear waste can be a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. I think that like some of the mechanics of the whole system can become uh, toxic. So mm-hmm. it could just look like a piece of machinery, you know? And something that's just come in, come in contact with a nuclear reaction. Yeah. Hmm. But then I think there is like actual nuclear waste and I don't know what that looks like. That's like a product of this of making nuclear energy and I don't know I imagine it to be like a battery hmm. but oh that's not as funny yeah <laughs> it's like it's scary it's scary because it's so you know it's like when you admit that there is it's just there like I don't know you can't avoid it you have to be less scared of it you're not going to touch it and die. It's like you're going to touch it and get really t- bad cancer in 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> you know? That's scary. That is scary. But, so that's like a big ongoing project that um, that I work on in spurts when we have like the opportunity to. How long have you been working on it for? Um, we did our first shooting day in, I think it was May. Mm-hmm. And then we've gone back out a number of times to interview different people and walk around and learn things and we did our next big shooting day last week Mm -hmm. um so in december cool and between then and now we've done like editing and research but yeah cool that's that tell me about a long ongoing project you're working on oh my gosh i have a few okay um gosh okay so i have my normal projects which are books right Mm -hmm. that's like my main job is I illustrate books and I just finished illustrating a book by a woman named Randall DeSev and it's called This Story Is Not About a Kitten Mm. and then I just I'm in the process of working on a cover and some art for a um, horror novel for kids Whoa! but it's pretty like legit scary so like middle grade novel like 8 to 12 year old kids though I think they're trying to skew it a little older that Colin wrote But, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm supposed to mention the title of it or anything. I know he's talked about it. I don't know if they've announced it. So I won't say the title, but I will say that I've been working on the cover for that. So that's my two, like, main jobs. Mm -hmm. And then in addition to that, as you know, I always have, like, a million little side things that are typically not work in the sense that I get paid for them, but they're just things I love to do. Mm -hmm. 
And as far as I'm concerned, equally as much my work as anything else I'm doing. So one of those projects right now is um, illustrating or drawing this comic that I've been thinking about and kind of outlining in my head for a bunch of years. I started drawing it so long ago before we even moved here. I started drawing it when we lived in Northwest Portland. So probably like 10 years ago and I drew like the first few panels of it and then I thought about it for a really long time. And then I decided that I didn't have it in me to draw a graphic novel because it seemed too hard. So I started to write it as a chapter book and I wrote like the first five chapters of it. And then I thought maybe it would be like a really, really long picture book. And then I abandoned it for five years. And then I recently just came back to it. And so what I'm doing with it now is I'm drawing it. It's a comic. And I guess it's like a web comic that I would publish someday. And I'm just putting it on Patreon. And I put it on Patreon because I knew that, as with so many things, I tend to get really excited about something, about a project idea, and just want to do that thing so much. And then my enthusiasm tapers off when something else, you know, it's like I'm just obsessed with whittling. I just love whittling things. And then, yeah. and then suddenly I'm like tired of whittling things, but I'm really into quilting. So I, I tend to be like all in and then abandon something and then take up something else. Mm -hmm. It feels almost like this kind of manic grip that these various pursuits kind of have over me and I powerless to yeah. <laughs> fight against them. So I was afraid that that would happen with this too. And I thought, hey, you really just need to draw like a handful of panels a month, every month forever, just to kind of keep plugging away at it. Mm -hmm. Just to keep it in the works because you're excited about it and not have, and also not to overthink it. Because part of the reason I abandoned it initially was that I was thinking of it from a publishing perspective and I was like who's the audience for this thing mm. can I really draw a graphic novel that seems like too much work if it's a chapter book I think it's too short and the way I'm writing it is too sophisticated for the age group that would read a chapter book this short you know I just like there are all these publishing conventions and they were sort of roiling around in my head talking to my agent about them talking to friends about them they're real things and I realized that that wasn't what I wanted to do. I didn't want to put together a project that I then had to like pitch to someone. Mm -hmm. Instead, I just wanted to draw this stream of consciousness, sort of stream of consciousness, but also I have like a outline for the story in the back of my head too. And just to sort of follow it wherever it takes me and just to keep drawing because it's fun. Yeah. And also to have this very portable thing because they're just like little pen and ink drawings so I can work on them in a sketchbook anytime I have time. So that's this project that at the rate I'm working on it, if I want to tell this whole story, it would take years and years and years. And maybe it will. But, but at least the Patreon thing, because people are like paying to be my patrons I feel like I can't not do it yeah and I'm not inclined to stop doing it but at some point some other more exciting thing will usurp this and my impulse would be to drop it and this makes it so that I have to keep working on it It holds you accountable it holds me accountable which is a very useful thing because the thing that normally holds me accountable is deadlines so without deadlines um, there's really no guarantee that anything gets done ever. Mm -hmm. As you know by how often we publish old right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, we're both I mean, this we way. even made a deadline, but then we <laughs> yeah. were like, oh, this is so fun because we can break all the deadlines yeah. we make. 
Um, yeah, so with, so so I wanted something that would hold me accountable without being a deadline. I'm like really, 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 really tired of deadlines. Mm. I've had them my whole working life, my whole parenting life. You know, I have a kid who's going on 16 and I, his whole life I've always been under the gun. I've always had a deadline and most of the time I've been late on a deadline mm-hmm. or about to be late on a deadline and it's kind of a shitty way to live like mm-hmm. it's inevitable it's my job I should be very grateful and am very grateful that I have deadlines people want to hire me to do illustration work but also I'm so tired of it mm-hmm. so tired of just always knowing that there's I that have pressure and that there's something I should be working on it's like being in school like you always have this feeling when you're not doing something of like, oh, well, I could be getting ahead on homework. I could be doing a better job. There's always this feeling of like, I could be doing a better job. And there's always something I should be doing that yeah. I'm not, unless I am doing it. Mm-hmm. And then I wish I was working on my little comic or whittling or whatever. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. Are you? Do you feel like the comic has changed the storyline because of how long it's taken you to write it? Yeah, a little bit. It had this main storyline, these two girls, and they go out into a wilderness looking for a cat. They just really want a cat. Their mom won't get them one. And so they go out into the world and they have this odyssey and there are some other storylines that you follow within this story. But I was the way it kind of came about was I was sitting and drawing with Milo and I drew this, I was, we were just doodling and I drew this picture of this like angry little butterfly. And I had um, like a little butterfly woman looking mm-hmm. very kind of consternated. Const- I don't what know. is that? What's <laughs> consternated? <laughs> I was trying to, I was trying to, to turn consternation into an adjective. Um, I don't know, just angry. Okay. Um, and so I, so I drew this picture, and then I, I was thinking a lot. I made a picture book called Do Is Talk, mm-hmm. which is the story of a bunch of – it's a story of a plant that grows and eventually dies. And it's like the, the world of creatures that revolve around it, this microcosmic world of, like, bugs and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and to make that book, I invented a language, not a very complicated one. I only invented the words I needed to use in the book, and mm-hmm. there's not very much – said or in the book so it's not very much but it is translatable all Mm -hmm. those words actually mean something and you can go through and translate it and so I was thinking a lot about that about how you can make up a language and teach it to people um because a lot of people figured out how to translate do is talk Mm -hmm. amazing like classroom sat down and just figured it out really yeah it's sort of I tried to be very intentional about it I think the combination of repeated words and context will lead you to decipher it. Mm -hmm. Do is talk means what is this? Mm -hmm. And you can sort of go through the book. And even if you just replace the do's and the is and the talks with the what's and the is's and the this, it gives you some. So if you're one of those people who's good at decoding, you can do it. And so I sort of wanted to make a comic like that. So I started with this little butterfly on the story of um, where the the only dialogue is in this language and trying to make it very easy easy to translate and then i wove these girls into the story and then i'm i so it has changed in that i i inserted this invented language aspect into it but the main story of the girls i think hasn't changed very much like i know what's going to happen to them and mm. 
where they're going. But um, I think with this way that I'm doing it, this more stream of consciousness way, there's as much room as I desire to be discursive and to digress and to follow whatever kind of creative impulses I want to follow within there. Mm-hmm. I will say that it's the first time I've ever drawn a long form comic. And like I recently just looked at the whole thing so far from beginning to end and I feel like I don't quite know how to do it yet. Like it doesn't make that much sense so far. I feel like I'll hit my stride. Yeah, yeah, I'm still at the beginning. But I but it's there's a it's a been a really interesting and fun learning process Mm -hmm. right now because I am now as far as I've ever been into drawing a comic and um I'm learning a lot. Yeah. I'm so excited to see it. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. I'm into it. Uh, what's another project you've got going on? Ooh, well, another project is that um, I took a class in the, I guess, summer. Mm-hmm. Um, about It was about thinking about DNA testing and the, the ethics of it, of humans, you know, and, and determining sort of your family lineage based off of it Mm -hmm. um and through that we read a lot of different texts about um sort of well race in america and and what it really means to determine a sort of identity based off of this scientific um external test that Mm -hmm. both is like created mostly by white people anyways I'm going into what the class was about, which was very interesting. But through it, we were asked to make a project that communicated a bit about our family for our descendant. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, at first, like put together this book that was very, uh, you know, explicit. Like my great grandma did this mm-hmm. and was In this person. 1896. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. And then I was like, no one cares. Like it's not for the whole world. It was for my um, descendant, but it felt very like the voice was not for a child and it would just be someone talking at them. And I wanted it to be more of a prompt, like mm-hmm. an enga- a way for them to like engage with who they are and how they came to be who they are. Mm-hmm. And I was also thinking a lot about, um, all of the components of what makes us who we are and how a part of that is our, biological family but there's a lot of that that's like the learning that we um incur from all of the people around us who are guiding us through our young life and and so I ended up writing this short story that is um it prompts kids to think about all of their caretakers and Mm -hmm. then their caretakers caretakers and sort of like is like a play on words and a play on ideas about um thinking about how far back you can understand somebody's caretaker. Mm -hmm. And I wanted it to be something that parents could read and feel like their kid understood that they were like, um, in a playful way, not in like a dark way, but that that they were like offering themselves to their kid. But I also wanted it to be something that like a grandparent could read or someone who's not biologically related. I mean, I've spent so much of my time nannying. Yeah. And I feel like I hope that I have my own kids someday, but I don't know that I will. And But I feel like I've contributed to a lot of 
kids' life mm-hmm. lives, and so I, yeah, yeah, deeply to my own kids. <laughs> oh, I can person. say definitively, it's true. I got to see Milo today, and it was like the best. I know he was so excited. Uh, you yeah. got to see his like ridiculous Brit pop haircut that it's he has. It's amazing. He looks like a beetle. I know the hair keeps getting longer and longer, and we don't know how to do it, so we just keep cutting the bangs. Yes, <laughs> it's just getting weirder and weirder, but it's cool. Um, it's really interesting to think about how just reversing that chronology when you think about ancestors and descendants, mm-hmm. instead of like, your great grandmother had your grandmother and your grandmother had your mom and your mm-hmm. mom had you and here you are, you have a mom and your mom had a mom and yeah. your grandma had a mom. Like that is, that, that's a lot more touching in a way. And it feels, there's something that feels, more like uh, empathy inspiring or connection inspiring about thinking about from the kid's perspective Mm -hmm. instead of thinking about like everybody had a baby and you were the most recent one it's more like everybody had someone take care of them and everyone was once a kid Mm -hmm. can be I think somewhat of a startling revelation for a kid to have yeah it's sort of a beautiful premise for a book yeah I think I wanted it to be something that was like I guess I feel like I've had those revelations in adulthood of like, oh, wow, this component of me is directly linked to like my great grandma and who she was. And like, maybe Mm -hmm. I never met her even, but like she she raised my grandma and my grandma (coughs) raised my mom and my mom raised me. And like this thing was like passed down, you Mm -hmm. know? And I, I thought it would be cool to like prompt kids to think about themselves as like a part of this in both like a beautiful way and also a complicated way. How like, um, we, we are the inheritors of a long story, you know? Um, yeah. So I'm excited. I, I wrote that over the summer and, and, um, have been finishing up a job like a, money-making job where I work at a restaurant mm-hmm. <laughs> and but have been feeling that my energy for that type of work has really waned mm. and I'm in January I won't be doing that work anymore and I'll have some time for to, to, to pour into creative projects and a goal is to work on the illustrations for this piece I'm really excited about it thanks I think it's gonna be amazing thanks you're welcome so that's another short, but of course, like, tell me about like a small, tell me about a time filler project that you're doing when you don't want to do anything else. Uh, well, okay. I'm working on this quilt. Yeah. And it's the first time. So I've made another quilt, but it was like, I just made the quilt top and then brought it to like a lady with a long arm quilting machine who quilted it. Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've made the quilt and I'm quilting it myself and I've been working on it for a very long time. I started, it's a quilt that incorporates a lot of applique and it is uh covid pandemic inspired so you know it has like messages on it in embroidery that say like wash your hands and Mm -hmm. whatever else it says wear a mask um and it features things like red crosses and uh hourglasses and Mm -hmm. um Wow, that's going to be in like Oregon Historical Society in a hundred years. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it will be like in my great, 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 great grandchildren's like ch- chest of treasures. Yeah. We will see what happens with it if I ever finish it. My goal was always like finish it 
before because I finished the quilt top um, and then I decided to hand quilt it. And I, I went through, I even like started hand quilting it one way with just these random kind of swirly shapes over it and then decided I didn't like that. Mm-hmm. And so I pulled all of that out because this is kind of how I roll as an artist. If it's you not like exactly, so similar. I know, I'm always like, that is not the way I envisioned it. And I don't care how long it's going to take. I'm just going to take it out and start again. I do that all the time. I will like unravel half a sweater and re-knit it. So that's what I did with this. And now I'm doing the kind of quilting. And for those who don't quilt, when I say I quilted it, I mean I've sewed all the elements of the top of the quilt. And hand quilting is actually when you are attaching the top of the quilt through the batting and the backing with little stitches. And those can be really intricate, or they can be just sort of like a giant grid or whatever you want it to be. All you have to do is attach those three pieces in a way that's stable. Mine is turning out to be fairly intricate and I'm doing like, I think maybe it's called stitch in the ditch or something where I'm actually like quilting around all the shapes and stuff Mm -hmm. and then quilting grids and stuff into the big areas to make sure that there's just tons of stitches in this thing and it feels really sturdy. And man, it's very time consuming. Yeah. I come back to it whenever, it's a really nice thing to do when I'm, like listening to an audiobook with my family or something like that, like just sitting in the living room, hanging out to have something to do with my hands. And um, I don't know if we'll ever reach herd immunity. So my goal to finish this quilt before herd immunity is like totally fine. Yeah, you're going to get I there. might have my whole life, now <laughs> COVID forever, and I'll be quilting all along with it. This, I feel, um, is a good prompt to talk about it's like a bookend because we started off talking about Edwardian farm right yeah and um I've been really into this series called hands and it was a documentary series made I think it was in the 70s and 80s by this couple in Ireland who uh they just were like believers in film and they traveled around all of Ireland and made 30 minute videos I think there's like 45 of them or something 30-minute videos on different Irish crafts. <gasps> and they're incredible. They're so good. And one of them is about quilts. Mm. Um, I actually posted in my story some little snaps from it today. Mm. But, um, but yeah, there there's, like, one about, like, weaving tapestries. There's about mining stuff. There's about making butter. There's about, like, making flax, like, um, linen, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, there's just, like, any kind of... Irish craft and it's on old film and they're so beautiful and incredible and they're all on YouTube for free but there's also an accompanying book like you can go on their website it's called Hands Hmm. Um, anyways highly recommend it any listener and you Carson I think you'd love it (laughs) I think I would love it and I think there would be some overlap Mm -hmm. because like for example I think it's on Tudor Monastery Farm they there's a there's one episode where they go from like shearing the sheep to blocking the finished wool fabric Mm. all in one episode so you see every single stage of that yeah um and it's amazing yeah yeah very illuminating Mm. Mm. project time tis the winter happy solstice oh that's true that was yesterday yeah um and by the time (laughs) (laughs) you're listening to this yeah (laughs) um it's not actually whatever day it is where you're listening to this. But yeah, happy solstice. Did you do anything special? I went snowshoeing. Oh, that's really special. It was so good. And I love I love how like 
snowy landscapes become line drawings mm-hmm. it feels super meditative and um, a lot of my painting practice is drawn from that kind of an environment mm, lots of soft shapes soft shapes patterns yeah so it was it was beautiful and very uh, a perfect sort of celebration um do you want to know what i did for I solstice do. i didn't do a single thing <laughs> i didn't mark it in any significant way mm-hmm I didn't even light a candle. Wow, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Is it though? I don't even know what it is. It just is what it is. It's been quite a week. I mean. Yeah, nothing. You know what I think you would like? What? I recently was introduced to putting chartreuse, like the liqueur. Is it a liqueur? Liqueur? Liqueur. I don't know. The alcohol chartreuse, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, You put like a shot or two of it in coffee Mm -hmm. with a little cream. Mm -hmm. And... Wow, next level, so good. And I think I'm going to be doing that all Christmas. All Christmas. Yeah. Nice. (laughs) Noted. It's very, like, spiced tasting. Huh. Mm -hmm. That sounds Mm Christmassy. Anyways, shall we? Yeah, I guess we shall. So we have this other... um, This is just a reminder that a few episodes ago, we read the first part of this Jacob, the account of Jacob Robbins's life. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting, really, really long account given by his son Harvey in the twenties, um, and I, I think that's to come. Mm-hmm. We're we're gonna, I think, split that up into three parts and read the second part soon. So that might be the next episode, or maybe not. I think it will be. But this is this is actually just to say, because a couple people have asked me about it, that we haven't forgotten. No. To return. We no, never no, we're coming forget. back. We're coming back. We haven't forgotten to return to that. We're just waiting to have no better ideas. Yeah. Which like happens. This. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> this felt like a better idea. This did feel this was fun. I agree. Um, thanks for putting up with us. Yeah. Merry Christmas, everyone. Merry Christmas. Or or New Year's. I saw a sign yesterday that said, Day. Merry whatever doesn't offend you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Mary, whatever doesn't offend you. Yeah. And definitely happy solstice because yeah. nobody's offended by the solstice. No. Bye. Bye. Yeah. Mm-hmm.